Baby, I'm a gangster too, and it takes me to tango. You don't wanna mess with me, mess with me. Baby, I'm a gangster too. <laughs> Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Cosmic Beach Podcast. It is our monthly breakdown shakedown, and we have repeat offender, Drew Missing in the house. Drew, how are you? I'm great, Julia. How are you? I'm good, and good morning. I know we have a huge time difference, <laughs> and uh, I rudely called you in the wee hours of the morning, <laughs> thinking you <laughs> stood me up for this episode, but no. <laughs> Uh, my bad on that. Um, but, so it's okay, it happens. <laughs> yeah. I tasked you with watching a film and I was wondering, Drew, if you can kind of talk to us a little bit about our selection tonight. All right. So I actually went away and I wrote a little bit of a synopsis of what this film is. Okay. So let's see how well I've done. Let's see if I can get a job in Hollywood and maybe writing the blurbs on back of DVDs or something. Okay. All right. <laughs> From the mind of the controversial director, Roman Polanski, the supernatural thriller, The Ninth Gate, is a movie adapted for the from the Autoro Perez Reverte's 1993 novel, The Club of Dumas. The 1999 film follows the main character, Dean Corso, played by Johnny Depp, who is an antique book dealer who practices in unscrupulous methods to get what he wants. His reputation soon gets him noticed and Corso is hired by a scholar, Boris Balkan, Frank Langella, to authenticate his copy of the ninth, the Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, allegedly written by the devil. May I take a look? All my own rare editions have the same protagonist, the devil. Only the supreme masterpiece was missing. The Nine Gates is a kingdom of shadows. A book reputed to have been written by Satan himself. I want you to go to Europe. I want you to get it for me. You mean the devil won't show up? Reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. Some books are dangerous. You don't know what you're getting yourself into, Mr. Corso. Get out before it's too late. I'm afraid it already is. At last the key, you unlock the night gate. You travel in silence to brave the arrows of misfortune and fear neither noose nor fire. There have been men who have been burned alive for just a glimpse of what you are about to witness. Boom. 
yeah, that I mean, that's it right there. The ninth gate. So uh, on its face, it's obviously occulted. But there's even more layers, like a five-layer burrito that you have to kind of break down as you go. And I wrote as kind of my synopsis that we're basically going to go through the film and look at the occult messaging of the Luciferian left-hand path that leads the initiate towards enlightenment via the Whore of Babylon, in my opinion. So the film definitely has a lot of uh, Kabbalism, occult, and Illuminati messaging throughout, but I have actually come up with a few of my own theories. And we probably came to the same conclusions because <laughs> we're pretty <laughs> like-minded on a lot of that. But um, it'll be interesting to kind of dissect this. And one of the first things I wanted to mention before we kind of get into our storyline is that the Ninth Gate, it's called a neo-noir horror film, horror thriller film, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of boring. In some parts, uh, I don't know how thrilling it is, but it came out in 1999. So when you invert this, of course, you're getting your 666 right off the top. Now, did you have any thoughts about how the film was made or anything to get us going? Um, it's definitely a Polanski-esque film. You look at it, it's like you said, it's a, it's a slog at times. You're watching it, it's a near two and a half hour film when it's all said and done by the time you're going through the motions of trying to understand and unpack it. I think he presents this film in a, like you said, it definitely shows the elements of the Illuminati, Satanism, all of those conspiracy theory tenets that we think about when we think of the elites, but he's just putting that out on its face. He's just dropping that and saying that this is how it is, um, which is great, but you actually have to look through the hidden clues and the subtle um, cinematography shots and the choice of colors and names and things to unpack what's really going on deeper on. Yeah, because like Eyes Wide Shut, everybody knows you don't even have to be a conspiracy theorist to watch the movie and go, there's something going on here. But there are levels to it. And this is the same thing for me. I mean, Roman Polanski is the same guy who, you know, his wife was an admitted witch and she was sacrificed in some weird ritual by the Manson family. So but <laughs> you can see how his mind is already twisted. And anytime you watch a film like this, you're seen through the eyes of the director. And he claims claims that he's not into occultism or luciferianism that he doesn't believe in it and i think that's horseshit i think mm -hmm. he is absolutely involved in that yeah i think it almost comes across more of he was that far into it and then he maybe pissed someone off on the inside and that's why he really fled the states definitely he's a kitty fiddler like we know that about him but <laughs> right. um i dare say maybe he pissed a lot of people off just by putting out their little secrets on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And in Rosemary's Baby, which is another devil worship movie, but he's not into this stuff. He just loves making <laughs> movies about it. Um, 
But so I found that the premiere showing was in Spain and it released on August 25th, 1999. So I'm always talking about the eight and whether or not it's a real thing. I have found so many eights in connection with stuff like this movie releases, et cetera, deaths and so on. And when I saw that, it stood out to me because it didn't come out in August in the U.S. I think it was after that, if I'm not mistaken. But the first premiere being in Spain in August caught my attention. And um, one of the actors, his name is Frank Langella. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He plays Balkan. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love his character because he's so pretentious, like a the professor type. But he was actually um, chosen for that role because of his performance in the movie Lolita, which is a Stanley Kubrick film about pedophilia. So I don't want to say that's a definite <laughs> connection, but it's curious to me. Oh, they probably buy their kids from the same people. Right. So you know what I'm saying? He was just so taken by his performance in this child pedophilia movie that he put him in this Satan worshiper movie and made him one of the main characters who was trying to open the nine gates. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I would almost um, go as far as that um Langella is one of two protagonists i think it's actually not just johnny depp's character but i think it's his character that they're the actual main characters of the film they're not a secondary um character he's not a protagonist at all i think they are the the main characters yeah because no other besides the girl quote unquote there are no characters who just stand out right off the top that don't get offed because you meet them and they kind of die later on in the story. Even Balkan ends up dying, but it's not until way, way, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so during the shooting of the Ninth Gate, Johnny Depp met his longtime love. What's her name here? Something parody. Do you know who I'm talking about? And they had a uh, daughter together that year. Oh, yes. What's her name? Vanessa, Vanessa Parody. He met her while he was filming The Ninth Gate, and he they actually had a daughter the year The Ninth Gate was released, and that's Lily Rose Depp. But also interesting to me, um, I haven't really seen Lily Rose Depp in a whole lot of movies, but I Googled her and she looks just like her dad. It's kind of interesting. Have you seen her? No, I haven't. I've not seen her. I'm going to have to oh, look that up, see what she looks she's like. She's really pretty. If you can imagine, well, Johnny Depp actually has kind of a feminine-esque type of look already. So his daughter, yeah, she's gorgeous. And, and I think she was a supermodel for a while, but I haven't really seen too many movies that she's been in um but did you want to jump into the storyline or do you have any little biscuits and gravy to spill before before we get into it i I, once again i always look at the names because i think the names are intentionally chosen for a reason to help push the story forward and being that this was a book originally i can tell that the authors used 
the names in it to help drive the character's um, progression and story arc. So our main character, air quotes main, Dean Corso, played by Johnny Depp, is the anglicised version of the Hebrew word meaning justice, law, or verdict. Corso actually means, is Latin and means um, guardian. So within the story, he, the character says his name means running away, but within the real world, it means a guardian. So what we see from this character is that he's actually a guardian of justice. And when we see that later in the film play out in his actions in regards to some of the other big players in this film. Um, mm-hmm. Boris Balkan, who's our big bad guy in this. Boris, a lot of people think stems from Russian, um, which means fighter. But originally it comes from the Turkish word, which means wolf. So Balkan is a, the Turkish, and Balkan, the surname is the Turkish word for mountain. So he's a wolf of the mountain, wolves in the esoteric and pagan symbolism. It's a spirit and a chaos god of destruction. So through these pagan beliefs, we know that the gods dwell in mountains like Zeus, uh, Mount Olympus, the Norse, they all dwell in these giant mountainsides. So if we're thinking about this guy as being a spirit or a god of destruction, he dwells within a mountain. And what's the first place we see this character in? A metal high rise. So it's a modern day mountain. I love it when you do the names. Yes, that makes so much sense. And uh, destruction comes into it later on on his character's journey throughout the film, which we'll get into as well. Did you look up um, any of the other ones? I'm trying to remember. So the the girl is literally just called the girl. She's the nameless. Girl, yes. um, there was a Telfler and a Kessler or something. Yep. Yeah, you there's did Telfer. do those? I did do those, but I can jump into those later on when we um, introduce the characters. Oh, okay, cool. Life, want to. All right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you want to start us out? You want to talk about the, uh, I would actually like to start at the beginning, beginning, because the credits, I I guess they're called opening credits. Are you passing through the nine gates? And a lot of people skip over that part because it's five minutes long passing through the nine (laughs) gates. But I have done a lot of research into cursed movies and and directors using movies to actually curse you. So for me, having him take you through all nine gates is creepy. So it's are you opening these gates in your mind? Are you opening those gates in your home when you watch it? It's just one of those fine lines for me where when you watch something on a screen, your mind can't really tell the difference between what's reality and what's fictional on the screen. So you're going through these nine gates and I, by the five minute marker passing through the gates, I was like, oh my fucking God, I just let a bunch of demons into my house. Like I already (laughs) fucking, but I mean, yes, it's five minutes. That's so long. So obviously it was very important to him. And it's, it's very fixating by the tone and the ominous music that's happening in the background as you're watching it. And you're, you're really trying to focus on the words and the names and the directors, everything that's coming up you're actually going through these doorways, these gates as it's happening and you're not even realizing it, even though it's a five minute span of time, which kind of predicts how long the film goes for and how long it drags out. 
you're just fixated on it. It's almost like a brainwashing technique in itself. Yeah, yes, yes. So I'll let you kind of take the lead on the storyline because you're way better at it than I am because I kind of, I go from the beginning to the end to the middle to the end again. So (laughs) (laughs) Drew, do your thing. Let's go through the storyline. Sure. So our film introduces... Their first character we meet is Andrew Telfer. He's the the man who owns the book uh, the first time around. And we find out that he's committing suicide, hanging himself um, from a noose on the fan on his ceiling. The really interesting thing I noticed about this fan was at the very centre of it, there's a, a golden pine cone in the centre of it. So this pine cone we see a lot in Catholic symbolism, in the esoteric. It's actually a symbol of the pineal gland. So this Uh, man who's had this demonic book, a book supposedly written by the devil who's now committing suicide, it's almost sending a message that he's a person who's tried to master the dark arts or contact the devil, whatever way you look at it, try to become illuminated to gain knowledge through consciousness, and he's failed at it. So in his epic failure, he's decided to commit suicide under a symbol that is the third eye, the pineal gland. Wow, you're already killing it, Drew. I didn't even notice that. So there you have the pine cone symbolism right off the top. And we later find out about this character uh, that his wife had a big thing to do with him committing suicide as well. But so, yes, we have the hanging scene. Yes. Kind so of we symbolizing didn't... also, uh, sorry, the hanged man. In yes. occultism as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead. Definitely. Um, so we move on. We he we find out later on that he he sold his book to Balkan, which is our big bad guy in this film. But we move on to our protagonist. He's giving an evaluation on a private book collection in the city. We soon notice that Dean or Dean Corso is somewhat of a grifter and a charlatan. He's conning the couple, telling them that um their collection's worth upwards of um, $700,000, $600,000, and they sh- need a couple of months to appraise it and get a perfect buyer. And then at the same time, he says, oh, but there's a four-volume edition of Don Quixote here, which I can give you so- some money for. And he gives them cash, and you see the original owner who suffered a stroke in a wheelchair gripping his leg, like trying to <laughs> protest at the selling of these really expensive books. The interesting thing is the choice of the books that he's buying. Don Quixote literally means someone who's determined to change. Mm-hmm. So this shows our character's progression throughout the film of how he changes as a character. It becomes more relevant as a metaphor for the film as it goes along. Well, at a rough preliminary estimate, you have a collection here worth around $600,000. 600000 Yes, or thereabouts. I've picked out one or two volumes that merit special attention. This Persilis, for example, is important. I'd hang on to that. It will never depreciate. It's a good investment. Valuable? Very valuable. As for this, Hypnoratomachia di Polifilo by Colonna, Venice 1545, um, I'm sure I could find you a buyer. But I wouldn't let the rest go for less than 500000 under any circumstances. It may take a month or so to place them, so in the meantime, I advise you to be patient. A month? Yes, a month or two. It depends on how much of a hurry you're in. You see, more hurry, less money. Of course. Well, that's my advice anyway. Uh, I'm sure you wouldn't want to rush things, but please feel free to consult another expert. If you have any questions, you know where to reach me. Incidentally, this four-volume edition of Don Quixote is 
quite nice, but not particularly valuable. Now, I could take it off your hands uh, right away. Mm, how much were you uh, thinking of? Oh, I couldn't go more than 4,4200 tops. Oh, fine. And you know what else is interesting about that Don Quixote is when I did the breakdown for the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, Ron was talking about Terry Gilliam, who directed that movie, and he also directed something else, but um, he was trying to make a movie about Don Quixote, and it was it's literally called A Cursed Project. Every single time he tried to make the movie about Don Quixote, something horrible happened or one of the actors died in some really mysterious or tragic way. And I had just done that breakdown and then I watched The Ninth Gate and he's going after these Don Quixote books. And I was like, oh, my God, it's just so it's it's a weird. But yeah, um, Johnny Depp is so smooth he's i'll just take these off your hands for you how about i think he gives them four thousand dollars or yeah. something like that and they're worth like triple quadruple yeah. that amount really, of money. really low balls them and at the same mm-hmm. time he's let them know that they're the rest of their collection is worth huge amounts of money when it's pretty much worthless that we find <laughs> out later on so he, yeah. he leaves this place, he's he leaves a building, one of his competitors walks in and starts calling him a shrew of a man and a charlatan and all the names under the sun. And then he meets his friend who's an antique bookseller and he tries to negotiate a deal. Have you got that uh, that customer who wants to buy these books? And then they're haggling about, oh, what percentage do I get? And the entire time, Borso sticks to his guns and isn't willing to budge on the percentage, even to a friend, air quotes. So this really instills the motivation behind Corso. Everything is about cold, hard cash. He has a greed mm-hmm. for money. Mm-hmm. And he's very black and white when it comes to, he, he. it's not even that he really has an interest in the books themselves, but just the business of the books. So I would almost compare him to a drug dealer for books. He doesn't <laughs> want, he's not giving anybody discounts. It is what it is. Um, and we see that when he is tasked to do this little adventure thing. But so, yes, he meets his friend at the bookshop. And it's kind of showing us his character a little bit. But what happens after that? Um, before we jump in, did you notice how much his character looks strikingly like Leon Trotsky, one of the the key members of Bolshevism in Russia during the rise of communism? With which the mustache? Very, the mustache, the round glasses, yes. the hair, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because Leon Trotsky himself was a person who was absolutely fascinated by books. So I don't mm-hmm. know whether that was creative control by Johnny Depp or not. I actually put that in the very back of my notes in case you didn't mention it, and I, and I knew you would. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> All right, so uh, we now see our protagonist visit the Balkan Press Building. Um, his trip where he meets the spirit of the mountain, aka Balkan. Um, he, he's lecturing people on witchcraft and Satanism. So we're setting the tone really early what this film's actually about. Um, Dean falls asleep during this lecture, but before doing so, he notices a very strange blonde woman who's staring at him, has these very vibrant green eyes. 
Um, he falls asleep during this. It doesn't really interest him. You can see that he doesn't care about the content of what this guy's telling or say, uh, saying. And he just falls asleep. A few moments later, he's awoken by Balkan and is given the proposition of working for him. So he's there for a meeting and he guides him to the elevator leading up to his personal library. Now, I dare say you would have noticed this too. What's the three buttons that he, the button that he pressed three times on the elevator to go up? Six, six, six. Yeah, bingo, mm-hmm. six, six, six. So yes. he presses six three times to give six, six, six. They're talking the whole time up this elevator. You're getting a bit more character development. It's You're finding out that they're both not the best people in the world. Um, they don't really have friends. They're not the nicest people. They all um, stab someone in the back to get ahead. But they know that about each other. And there's somewhat of a mutual respect for their their profession in one another. He then walks out of the elevator, goes to this giant ornate glass cabinet of his personal library where there's giant uh, monolithic pillars on the inside of this building looking very ancient. And to access the library, again, the code is 666. At which point, Balkan describes he has the most vast collection on any one topic of one character, and that protagonist is the devil. This scene, to me, describes many things about those two, but the girl backing up a little bit to the lecture where he sees her and then he falls asleep, she's totally out of place, but not out of place enough that she couldn't just be a student she has mm-hmm. a messy bun and a jacket a zip up jacket sneakers so she could easily be a student but she looks younger than everyone else in the entire room so she's out of place but not out of place and this is the first time that i noticed how the ambiguity around this character starts the moment you see her because she could have been no one she could have been the most important person in the room. You have no idea because of her look. And the reason that Johnny Depp associates her with Balkan is because that is his first sighting of her. But I don't even think Balkan being this pompous, he has this whole library, right? And he's got all the books and da 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 da. He never once questioned how Johnny Depp was getting away with like all this stuff along. He was never like, how did you make it out? And well, this girl showed up and I think she's working with you. And he never questioned any of that because he was so self-centered. And he tells Johnny Depp when they're in the library, he's like, there's nothing better than like a man's trust that can be bought for hard yeah. cash or something like yeah. that. there's the nothing quote? more reliable there's nothing more reliable than a man's loyalty that can be bought with cold hard cash cold hard cash yeah um do you have anything about the little conversation uh that they're having while they're looking at the book for the first time when they flip yeah. it open in there the engravings you're now admiring were adapted by Tokyo from the della Melonico. They form a kind of satanic riddle, correctly interpreted with the aid of the original text and sufficient inside information, they're reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. You don't say. 
Are you a religious man, Mr. Corso? I mean, do you believe in the supernatural? I believe in my percentage. Don't you get dizzy standing there? What is it that you want from me, Balkan? I want you to go to Europe and investigate. The other two copies are in Portugal and France. I want you to find some way of comparing them with mine. Every page, every engraving, the binding, everything. I'm convinced only one is authentic. I want to know which. That could be an expensive trip. That's to get you started. Spend what you need. What if I find that your copy's a forgery? It's quite possible. Really? It doesn't appear to be. Even the paper sounds kosher. Even so, there's something wrong. You mean the devil won't show up? If all three copies turn out to be bogus or incomplete, your work will be done. If, on the other hand, one of them turns out to be genuine, I'll finance you further. I want you to get it for me. At all costs. Never mind how. Never mind how sounds illegal. Wouldn't be the first time you've done something illegal. Not that illegal. Hence the size of the check. Do a good job. I'll double it. There's got to be something wrong with it if you're letting it out of your hands. I have the utmost faith in you, Mr. Corso. There's nothing more reliable than a man whose loyalty can be bought for hard cash. So the whole idea is Balkan has hired Johnny Depp as an appraiser to look at the book that he's just purchased. Now, Balkan's come to the, the conclusion, the information that there's actually three books in circulation, but only one of them is genuine. And his whole idea is that he's hiring Corso to appraise the books, to look at them, compare them, to find out which is the original, which is the real one, um, to find out which one's a counterfeit. Um, this in itself is a nod to the Holy Trinity. It's like an inversion of it, that mm -hmm. there's not just one book, there's three that have to be used together to decipher the code that we find out later on in the story. Um, in their discussion, he's, he's boasting and bragging about this book because it's the ultimate of his collection. It was a final piece he needed for his library. And he's talking about how the book was made in Venice in 1666. So once more, we get that 666 symbolism again. And he's talking about how the author was writing this book in league with the devil based off the devil's own version of the Bible. And he was transcribing it onto this book. And this character was later um, burned alive by the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going through the book and he's looking at it. And this is the first time we find out that Corso is actually a very well-read person. He's just not an appraiser. He's very uh, knowledgeable in languages and history. He reads the bottom Latin transcript, silence is golden. And we can see a bit of a smirk on Balkan's face. And he says, yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, and he's asking him about, are you a religious man? Do you have a belief in the spiritual, in the spiritual world, in those realms? And Corso turns around and says, I believe in my percentage. I, I don't really care about yep. any of this mm -hmm, stuff. I just mm -hmm. want the money. Tell me what I've got to do. Let me get this job done. Let's stop the small chat. Let me just be done with it all. Yep, totally uninterested. And that kind of bothered Balkan because he's one of those that likes to just hear himself speak. And he wanted 
uh, Corso to be interested in it. So he could just give him a big lecture like he was just doing in the in the um, classroom. But when he says that you're off the bat going ahead and making the assumption that Corso is totally skeptical. He is a skeptic. He did. The book could have been how McDonald's was fucking founded. He doesn't (laughs) give a shit like he does not give a single shit about what the book is. Um, But he agrees to do the job and he now has to investigate further uh, into the origins of the book. And the book was written by something something Torcha in tandem with the devil, pretty much. I can't remember the first of his name, but it's something something Torcha. And they're going to the previous owner before Balkan, which is Teffler. And yeah, here's a- where we meet Liliana. Yeah, before we jump into that, I just have to point out that the whole time this conversation's going on, it's like Corso doesn't actually want the job. He's looked at the book, he's flipped through it, he's like, yeah, it's genuine, just pay me. He even flicks mm-hmm. the pages and goes, it even sounds kosher. At which point Balkan says, yes, but there's something wrong with it. And Corso says to him, what, the devil didn't appear? <laughs> so implying, and he doesn't deny it, so it's implying that this man who has a huge interest in the esoteric and the devil has actually tried to summon Lucifer through this book and it hasn't worked. That's why he's actively trying to find out what's wrong with it to see if it's a fake. So, yes, you're right. He does leave this, reluctantly takes a job. He's written a check, doesn't even look at the number on it to see how much he's paid, um, puts it in his pocket and then checks it later. He leaves and then goes and sees Liliana Telfer. Now, this is where Liliana's name comes into it. Yes. So, it's Hebrew in origin for my God has answered and Telfa French means to cut. So we know in satanic rituals, they engage with the other world through blood magic and bloodletting. Liliana's God has answered through her self bloodletting. Oh my God. I also feel like it was their maybe like their wink or nod in the direction of Lilith. Mm -hmm. So it's the inversion again, because this Scarlet whore, this Lilith, this fucking Liliana, I hated her character from the second I saw her in the movie she uh had ruby red lipstick on but very gothic like a gothic chic type of vibe and didn't really seem too concerned or remorseful that her husband just literally hung himself a few days before this but so corso shows up at her house and she is acting like she knows nothing about the nine gates but drew tell us a little bit more about this scene so so he's sitting down really just trying to unpack why the husband would sell such an important book and trying to unpack where he got it from to find out whether it's a a forgery or not um and she seems shocked she's shocked that her husband sold his most prized possession she's she plays it pretty well so he's trying to gleam an understanding behind why he would sell it prior to a suicide. And she makes out that 
Um, it's his most prized possession in his collection. And he was acting very strange in his last few days before his death that he was actually around that book in his office for the days leading up to it and only come out to eat. And then one morning she heard the scream of the help as they found his body. Like you said, she's presented very dark. She's wearing dark satin um, clothes, red nails, red lips. Her hair's even slightly dyed a darker colour. She's not an an unattractive woman by any means as well. So she's trying to um, boost this persona of like a sexual energy going on, but she's playing it very dumb and she's not letting out too much information. She's kind of playing the role of the the rich housewife who didn't really know what the wealthy husband was up to. Mm-hmm. So she is a slutty slut bag. <laughs> and the, and it's like you said, it's not that she was unattractive. It's just, she was playing like she didn't know anything. So she could actually gain information from Corso because I don't think she even knew what happened to the book. I think her husband probably sold it and then killed himself. And she was like, yeah. where the fuck is my book? But ready for the uh, connection. Yeah. Go okay, ahead. Go here's ahead. The, the first gate, the first page, the first transcript silence is golden. This scene is silence is golden because she's refusing to talk about the truth and she's gaining information from Corso. Oh, so this is what I'm going to point out throughout the film. There are key scenes in this film which actually relate to the each of the gates. So each of the pictures that are drawn in these books, there's a scene that correlates to each of the events in this story that each of the characters have to go through to obtain enlightenment by the end. So I have in my notes that the entire movie, just like how the first five minutes was taking us through the gates, I feel like the rest of the movie from start to finish was just us seeing Corso going through the gates. But I had a hard time finding out what the first gate was. I wrote down that it was when he met Balkan for the first time. Um, I felt like that was significant, but that makes more sense. This with the silence is golden thing. And then I for sure know what the second gate is, but uh, such an interesting movie because if you're watching it just to watch a movie, you're going to fucking hate it because it's so slow and kind of, like you said, sluggish, but there's so much going on. So he meets Liliana, slut bag, uh, Mrs. Telfer, and then what happens? Uh, so he then goes to the library. So he's at the library trying to investigate the book a bit more. He's taking out volumes of uh, a study by Kessler, which is a character we meet later on, Baroness Kessler. She wrote a book about the, the creation of the book and the author of it. So he's trying to correspond to make sure it's it's a proper book and everything's kosher. Um, at which point he sees a a woman in the library as he's looking through the books. He sees that blonde woman again. Um, but just prior to this, he's looking in the book and he notices that there's the very front page of it. And in Latin, it says, thus let the light shine. That's the opening title of the book. Thus let the light shine. As we know, Lucifer is the light bringer. So it's definitely the devil's book. But the symbolism on the front of it, we have a, a cloud on top of a tree with a snake wound around it. That's actually the symbolic of the Kabbalah. Mm -hmm. yes yes and 
we can come up with a name for the girl, quote unquote, the messy bun. Um, I think she looks like a Katrina. And I also have a, <laughs> a few different theories on who I think she is that just just to kind of go outside the box, because a lot of people speculate that she was Lucifer, um, which could be true. And I have another theory to go along with it, but she keeps appearing. First sighting in the lecture hall, second sighting here in the library, and Messy Bun, it peers uh, through the books at him and then quickly vanishes. And you're not for sure if she has supernatural abilities yet, because maybe he could have just um, not caught up to her like she ran away and he couldn't see where she went but you later find out that she does have supernatural capabilities um yeah it's an interesting but, character polanski mm-hmm. makes you feel like she's you're guessing the whole time a lot of people early on seem to think that she actually might be an angel she might be good because she's following the bad guys around and keeping tabs on them then we kind of feel like oh is she lucifer or is she the whore of babylon or is she a, a fallen angel you're questioning the whole time and your idea and understanding of this character, it culminates at the very end of it. The rest of the time, you're guessing about the motives of this character the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in the library when he opens the nine gates and he's observing the engravings that it stuck out to me. The first engraving is the danger will come down on you from above engraving. And the figure is very specifically drawn, the one with the bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. And I'll say who it is later, but just bookmark that, everyone. The engraving with the little cherub-esque being with a bow and arrow. Okay, moving yeah. on to the yeah. next you'll, scene. You'll actually notice that a lot of the characters that are in this film are represented in the etchings within the book. It's very much mm-hmm. a Obis the Boss style type of a thing. Yeah. Uh, so... Dean um, ends up leaving the library, going back to his home. It's pouring down rain. He finds the front door to his apartment complex open, which he's, you see he finds odd. He then walks into his room, his house, his apartment, and finds it's been completely ransacked. So we leave from here, and Dean feels like that he's being followed, that someone's trying to steal the book. That doesn't seem right. So he goes to his friend Bernie's antique bookshop and asks him to hide it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he, he, so uh, Bernie is actually kind of reluctant, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And then it's like kind of sad what happens, but I think he was reluctant to hide the book at first. And after he agrees, Corso goes back to his apartment, right? And that's the second appearance of Slutbag. That's right. So he goes back home. And he gets a knock on the door and Liliana's help is there. And she comes in and she initially just tries to buy the book back. She tries to appeal to his his sense of greed and passion for money, which he's kind of saying, you know, my my client has a lot more money than you. I don't think it's going to go the way you want. I can't possibly sell it. So she tries another approach. She tries to use her sexual feminine wiles to try and seduce him. She lifts her, her skirt up and shows a little bit of thigh 
Uh, mm-hmm. He offers her a drink and she just grabs him on the crotch. <laughs> she doesn't mess around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she, he's standing in front of her with two scotches and she just grabs him by the, by the old fella and proceeds <laughs> to seduce him. So they, you can tell that there's a bit of a time jump. They've clearly slept together. They're both laying on the ground. He's lathered in sweat. She's all messed up. Um, but mm-hmm. prior to this, it's the way in which she kisses him seems very serpentine. Very, um, animalistic, very mention- animalistic. Yes, yeah, uh, she tongues him down. Oh yeah. my god! Even, so the, even her cig- even her cigarettes are black. They're rolled in black <laughs> paper. Mm-hmm. And, and blood she red has mouth, blood uh, lips. this fancy cigarette case because yes. only bougie sluts have <laughs> the uh, fancy cigarette cases. And after. <laughs> After, uh, you know, they get freak nasty. She, she's like, "Give me the book," and he's yeah. like, "No," and she's like, "Die!" And she yeah, it's, it's really, like beating it's really the bad. shit out of him. So while he's there having sex for the first time, we see that she has a like a, almost like a triple infinity symbol of a snake on her thigh, which we later find out is the the silver serpent um, cult or esoteric group. So they're laying on the ground. She first thing she does after the act is she goes to his bag and she's rifling through it. She says, where is it? And he says, where's what? And she says in the most demonic tone, which for the shortest amount of time made me believe that actually she was the devil. She says, don't fuck with me. (laughs) And then she jumps on him and starts beating the shit out of him, like you said. And he's trying to fight her off. He grabs her by the wrist and she leans in and bites his chest. She's that Mm -hmm. much of a psycho bitch. She is legitimately she wants to actually kill him i think she doesn't she like break a beer bottle and like yeah. come after him with it and it's like it went from okay give me the book and then <laughs> literally attempted murder so how does he get her out of there or he just runs out or something yeah no, so it, it, she she cracks him over the head and yes. he passes out right one of the many times he gets knocked out in this film, which actually relates back to another one of the pictures in the book. Um, so he wakes up after this and the first thing he does is go, oh shit, I've got to call Bernie. He calls Bernie, doesn't get an answer. Come on, Bernie, pick up. He leaves and goes to Bernie's apartment. He has his bags packed, everything, so he can flee to Europe on this trip. He gets in and he sees Bernie hanging from the staircase from one foot in the exact manner of the page that he earlier commented on the book. So when Bernie's looking at the book ready to hide it, he stops at a page where we see a man hanging from a tower by one leg. And Bernie says, these engravings are terrific, sensational, absolutely sensational. The one he comments on and stops on is the manner in which he dies. Yes. So do you believe this is the second gate? I believe this is the second gate. Yeah. Okay. So that, is what I also have in my notes. This is the second gate. So we're now at two gates and two bodies. Uh, Teffler and Bernie, RIP. Um, And now moving on, he gets a taxi from the bookshop and he's horrified because that's his friend. Even though he's not overly emotional, you can tell that really bothered him and I actually read something where he was interviewed about this movie and he said it's up to the director to push the actor to get 
what they need out of them. And Roman Polanski was like, I never understood why Johnny Depp played that character so flatly. And so I think there was like a miscommunication there because he did play it like really kind of emotionless and uh, flat. But yeah, I, I think it worked out though. It played into the character's um, apathy to everything else but money, which is really interesting because we see that we know this guy must grift people and get a lot of money out of his profession, but he lives in a really humble house. It's just a tiny little apartment. He doesn't mm-hmm. have the best furniture. So it makes you wonder where his money is actually going to. Mm-hmm. Unless he's just like banking it, you know, because yeah. it's like you said, very bare minimum with everything. His wardrobe, his apartment. Um, but so he gets a taxi and he stops along uh, the way and visits a payphone and calls Balkan because he wants out of the job. And you could probably put a little bit more detail on that conversation. Yeah, so after the events of finding uh, Bernie dead, he's he said, that's it, I quit, I don't want the job. And essentially, Balkan just you know, pushes it, more money's going to be available for you if you can do this. Um, have you got the book? He's always asking, do you have the book on you? Where is it? That type of thing. He's talk- he, has, he speaks a little bit to uh, Liana about what her motivations are and that she's like wanting the book back, that type of a deal. But it doesn't really go too far beyond, you know, you've got to stick this out and make sure that you can verify these books for me. So he leaves the the phone call a bit bemused by it that the guy wouldn't let him out of the deal. And he goes to the airport and flies to the first destination, which is Portugal. So Mm -hmm. he arrives in Portugal and he's walking through this really old town, cobblestone streets, old brickwork, looks very... um, barren there's no people and there's one kid of anyone you see there and he enters this library which is held by two twins that are very very interesting in themselves and i think you can note to who they look like as well yes so this bookshop owned by the twins for those who need a visual description it looks like the town from the beginning of the exorcist i don't know if you remember that but that Mm -hmm. it just reminded me of that so he goes in and he meets the twins who own a bookstore of rare books but they're both chain smokers and they're dropping their fucking ashes all (laughs) over the priceless works and they look like the cherubesque figure from the first engraving of the nine gates with the bow and arrow they are that character or yes devil demon whatever that's that's them my client wishes to satisfy himself on the book's authenticity his name is balkan boris balkan of new york all books have a destiny of their own even a life of their own Mr. Balkan is a celebrated collector. He's no fool. He must know this book is authentic. We know it. So must he. We've had this book for years. Many years. An ample opportunity to study thoroughly. Printing, the binding, a magnificent example of 17th century Venetian craftsmanship. Finest rough paper, resistant to the passage of time. None of your modern wood pulp. Watermarks, ink, typefaces. If this is a forgery or a copy with missing pages restored, is a work of a master. A master? Yes. 
Have you studied the engravings? They seem to have some underlying significance. But of course. Here, for example. This one could be interpreted as a warning. Venture too far, it seems to say, and danger will descend on you from above. This type of books often contain little puzzles. Especially in the case of such an illustrious collaborator. Collaborator? Mm -hmm. You couldn't not proceed very far in your research, senor. Here, look close. And you see? Only six of the nine engravings were signed by Aristide Torquia. Yes. And the other three? But this is one of them. L.C.F. Who's L.C.F.? Think. Lucifer? Very perceptive of you, senor. Torquia was burnt alive because he wrote this book in collaboration with someone else. Come on, you can't honestly believe the man that who the... wrote this book did so in alliance with the devil and went to the stake for it. Even <laughs> hell has its heroes, senor. Yeah, and we find out that the death from above happens soon after this little encounter. So we find out that these two characters, they actually owned the book before um, Tefla bought it from them. And we find out that it was the wife that was very motivated about it. She saw the book and she had to have it. And she persuaded and pushed um, Andrew to buy the book for her, um, which he seems very confused about. And he says, no, I thought it was in his collection. He says, oh, no, no, senor. It was her, her. She wanted it. And he said... They seem to know that it was Balkan that bought the book. They Everyone seems to know this guy. He runs in these circles. And they made a comment about the book and how, who it ended up with and who's had it in their possession. They say, all books have a destiny of their own and a life of their own. So this mm-hmm. book is almost going between people trying to find the right person to unpack its secrets. Um, they're looking through the book, looking at at pages and he's asking these two guys could this be a fake could this be something that's replicated and they're saying oh no 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 it couldn't be you need the period paper you need the inks you need the press it'd be more costly to make a fake than it would be to um to sell an original and he pointed out a couple of little keys there's misprints on the letters and then he points down to a little inscription at the bottom lcf and corso has no idea what this is who's lcf and he goes, who do you think it is with a smirk? And he says, Lucifer. And he says, yes, even Hal has its hero, senor. Even Hal has its, has its heroes. And so now that he is of the understanding that the engravings are signed LCF or TH or TF, whatever for torture, he notices that it's like every other one is mm-hmm. signed by LCF, which is interesting, right? And I don't think he believes that it's actually Lucifer because when he says it, he almost rolls his eyes like, oh, okay, yeah, Lucifer <laughs> drew this one. Um, but it's, I think the fact that they're twins is also significant too, by the way. Um, but it's after he leaves this bookshop that I think we pass through the third gate. Yes, he's walking down through an alleyway with scaffolding on the side. And as he's walking through, the scaffolding starts to fall and he has to run, otherwise he's going to be crushed. So that is the death from above that we see in that original um, transcription with the, the cherub and the arrow pointing down. So that's the third gate, him passing through. 
Do you think that they were trying to kill him? Um, I think that these are events that have to happen for the character. I think the characters have to go through turmoil, pain, fear, all of these things as they pass through these gates so that they can get to the final stage and attain enlightenment from Lucifer in this story. So I don't know whether it was someone trying to kill him. We find out later on that there's a bodyguard um, from Liana that's been following him, trying to get the book. So we're left to wonder, did this thing collapse supernaturally on top of him that he had to evade it, or was someone trying to knock it down? Do you think I just had a weird thought? And tell me, you can tell me if I'm full of shit, but he doesn't Corso, like he has to pass through all nine gates himself. And the first gate was the silence gate. So what if him stealing those books from that that mute guy is the first gate? That could be as well because, because he's, um, he's putting someone else through like some kind of torture in doing so. Right, because he couldn't speak for himself and he literally yeah. robbed him. So and the silence maybe, is gold and he got the gold from it. Do you think maybe yeah. that could have been the first gate? That, that could definitely be it, yeah. I think that Teffler was maybe trying to open his own gates and he fucked up and maybe got like oh went in way over his head and then he killed himself but it's like for me i think see this is why i love this movie it's so fucking cerebral you think you know what's going on but you fucking don't know shit all right so (laughs) after the scaffolding event take us to our next stop so next stop is we find him on a train and he sees again for the third time the strange woman so the blonde is there again uh and he has a little bit of an interaction with her and he's like oh and he asked the question about her being a student is this why you're on the the poorer class stagecoaches is it because you're a student and she says yes something like that with a bit of a smirk she never gives away a lot of information she leaves the the viewer wanting more to try and find out who she is so they're on this train this train is then heading towards the next character who owns the second book which is victor fargus Hmm. I think that she purposely doesn't give a lot of information because if she is the devil, there he's the devil Lucifer. He slash she is the god of lies and deception, and they don't answer a question with the truthful answer. It's a omission of truth or a half-truth or completely ambiguous statement. Are you a student? Maybe. Could be. (laughs) Uh, Or it's like, why are you on this train? I like trains. You know, it's never (laughs) like an answer. And this is the first time when I saw her eyes glowed and started almost like a lizard person, Mm -hmm. not a human shade of green and like pulsating. Why he didn't notice that. God only knows, but so yes, go ahead. So we we meet Victor Fargus, which is um, Latin for conqueror of fo- and Fargus means forges, um, which is interesting in the manner in which this guy dies because you temper steel by putting it in water, and this is how a character dies by being drowned in water. 
Um, he meets with them and this guy's the most open out of all the people that owns books. He doesn't really seem to care too much. He doesn't seem to be a believer in Satan. He's just a collector of rare older books. Um, he shows off his whole collection. He's very proud of it. You can tell that this manor house is a place that's um, in disrepair and it's slowly crumbling away. And he even talks to it. Corso says, to be honest, this isn't the way I imagined the Fargus collection. And Fargus turns and says to him, old families are like ancient civilizations. They all wither and die. Yeah. And I think this is the thing that all of these elites are trying to overcome in this whole storyline. They're all committed to this book, trying to obtain enlightenment or information from Lucifer because they're trying to avoid death. Mm -hmm. And I think in general, a lot of these elite societies, that's what their, their end goal is. They want to overcome death. They have a fear of death. And this is where he compares the uh, Balkan copy to the Fargus copy and notices there are discrepancies in the engravings. And you could probably speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, so like what you said, um, some pages have LCFs, Lucifer, or they have the, the author's titles there. So two different people have drawn the pictures. And we notice that in these variations of the pictures, there's slight discrepancies. In this one scene, we see that in the Fargus collection, the, the keys are in a different hand or they're different styles of keys. Um, ironically, the person who's depicted in this book with the keys looks like Fargus. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's um, the, Yeah, so that's the difference. Oh. The difference is there's slight variations in the pictures. And, and if you look at, if you find the different picture, if you look closely, Generally, you'll find LCF as the person who drew it or entity. And he starts doing a little chart where he writes Balkan, Fargus, and then eventually he'll write Kessler. Kessler. And he's mapping out the engravings, which is something that no one has done before. Because as you were saying before, they're elitist. They think they have the one and only copy and fuck those other copies. Like mine's the real one. But if they wouldn't have been so egotistical, they may have been able to open the gates, but they needed all three of these copies in order to make it work. But yeah. so he um, he leaves the manor and this, al what they call an albino, which he's not, he just has bleach blonde <laughs> hair guy on a motorcycle tries to run him off the road and we see the third appearance of um, messy bun on a motorcycle and she kind of chases the other guy off and um something that i have actually spoken about before is when you see the bleach blonde hair like marilyn monroe kanye eminem they change their hair color so dramatically and intensely that it almost kind of signals that they have an altar they're now in an altered state because when Kanye went crazy he bleached his hair when uh Eminem went crazy he bleached and, and buzz cutted his hair and then when I saw the guy in the motorbike with the bleach blonde hair I was like oh okay so there he's into some shit he's part of this cult and um but yeah so he goes back to the hotel right yeah, and he has a phone call. He has a conversation with Balkan updating him what he's found out. He points out to Balkan that both books are genuine, but there's discrepancies. And as soon as Balkan finds out there's discrepancies, 
He says, I have to have it. Corso, I have to have this book by any means necessary. And he says, like, the guy's not going to sell the book to save his life. And then he kind of hangs up and ends the conversation. Mm-hmm. So he then again sees the blonde. The blonde is sitting down in the lobby of this hotel and she's reading a book that says, that's titled Winning Friends and Influencing People. Yes. Yes. And it's significant because he takes the book out of her hand and he reads it. He's like, influencing your friends and da, da, da. Is this a book for school? And she was like, maybe I just like books. Again, like can never answer a question, can never be straightforward. And if this character is who we think it is, how fucking fitting is that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what makes you think that this person might be the devil or a demon or something otherworldly that influences people. Mm-hmm. So he ends the call with Balkan and he was like, the old man wouldn't sell the book to save his life. He said as much. And he was like, oh, did he click? And 3 a.m., let's just say in the morning, Messy Bun comes to Corso's room, knocks the door, and was like, you need to get over to the Fargus house. And they take the motorbike back over to Fargus, and he's drowned in the fish pond. Yeah, so we found the man whose family name means forge. So men are often referred to as steel in a lot of esoteric things. He's been tempered by the water, so he's dead. He's been drowned in there. She climbs in, busts into the house, and we find out that the book we think has been stolen. We see the gap in where it was sitting amongst the collection of the Fargus set. He notices over the fireplaces going. He looks in there, and that's where the book is. He breaks it out, dusts it off, gets the flames off it. It's completely burnt in half. You think it's ruined until he begins to flick through the pages, and it's very clear that certain pages have been torn out. And then the person's tried to cover up the evidence. This is when we find out that Corso has some kind of a, a belief in God as well. When he sees, when he first saw his friend dead, he said, Jesus Christ. And when he sees Fargus dead, he says, God Almighty. They're the only references we hear to God or um, a greater power that's not evil throughout the entire movie when someone's dead and he's commenting on it. So he has mm-hmm. some kind of a belief niggling in the background that's going on and if it was fargus in the engraving with the keys and that name is associated with iron could it have been the iron keys you know iron gate and Mm -hmm. so he is that personified and then like you said with the drowning but messy bun actually broke in the house to let um Corso in, which to me signifies another gate opening. Yes, yes. Um, and it's almost through his death that the keys are allowed so they can enter the enter the dwelling. Mm-hmm. Have have that All right. So um, where are we going after that? Okay, so they leave. Um, and she says, We've got to catch a, a flight to Paris. And he, she, he says, What do you mean we? And she says, Well, there's two of us, aren't there? They're on the plane together spending time you think okay now they're on this journey together as soon as they land he's standing there turns around and she's gone mm-hmm. she's completely disappeared and he turns around he stops and he looks down at a little blonde girl who stares back at him and it seems as if this this girl's just disappeared messy bun has disappeared now so he moves on he keeps going he eventually finds his way to 
uh, Baroness Kessler. So Baroness Kessler, of all people, is a German who's living in Paris, who you can surmise lived during the war and is a woman who said she's actually seen the devil once in her life and he was beautiful. Mm-hmm, that she was actually in love with him. Yes, and she's been devoting her life, her work, her library to him. Um, and that the book that they're talking about and they're comparing demands a certain amount of faith to understand it. You know, I know your catalogue almost by heart. Strange we haven't met before. Your name is a byword among dealers and collectors. <laughs> but I imagine you know your own reputation better than I do. <laughs> yes, well, it does keep the wolf from the door, so to speak. I'm sorry, Baroness, were you in the middle of something? My latest work, The Devil, History and Myth, a kind of biography. It will be published early next year. Mm-hmm. Why the devil? I saw him one day. I was 15 years old and I saw him as plain as I see you now. It was love at first sight. You know, 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake for saying something like that. 300 years ago, I wouldn't have said it. (laughs) (laughs) Nor would I have made a million by writing about it. Yeah. What is it you wish to discuss, Mr. Corso? Uh, There's a book in your collection I'd like to examine, if possible. It's the book of the Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows. The Nine Gates. An interesting work. Everyone's been asking me about it lately. Is that so? Follow me. You truly believe in the devil, Baroness? Enough to devote my life and my library to him. Not to mention many years of work. Don't you? Almost. This book demands a certain amount of faith. Yes, well, I'm afraid my faith is in short supply these days. I know this work extremely well. I've studied it for years. Do you have any doubts about its authenticity? None whatsoever. You're sure? My knowledge of this book is profound. I wrote a biography of its author. Yes, I've read it. Aristide Torquia, The Devil's Apprentice. Excellent work. A courageous man. He died for the sake of this very book in 1667. While studying the black arts in Prague, he acquired a copy of the Dread Dello Melanicon. This is Torquia's adaptation of that work, which was written by Lucifer himself. After they burned him at the stake, a secret society was founded to perpetuate its memory and preserve its secrets. The Order of the Silver Serpent. Which we know Corso doesn't have faith and he doesn't believe in it. He's very factual, very black and white. Um, this is when they start to have a conversation and he's being a bit aloof to the point that he's been sent by um, Balkan um, because he's got such a bad name and he doesn't let that slip. And she's talking about this, this book and and who's had it and whose collections it's been in. And she twigs and she says, who's, who are you working for? Who sent you? And he says, oh, my employer has, is, is very wealthy and just wants to confirm the books. And she goes, well, you can tell Balkan if he wants to come and look at my book next time, he can come and do it himself. She knows straight away. So he's kind of burnt his bridge in this case. He leaves, he returns to the hotel and he's talking to Balkan about, he doesn't have a chance to look at it because he can't get through. She saw through it all. And he pushes him again. You need to have a look at that book. You have to gain access to it. You're going to have to try and um, get through to it. And he says, well, I'm going to have to see if I can um, give a peace offering or something along those lines to try and get inside. And this is when we start to see the blonde man more often. 
we see our main character. He's Corso's drinking in a bar. He's always drinking. He drinks like a fish and smokes like a chimney. He's always doing that. He's sitting down to whiskers <laughs> and he notices this, this Dennis Rodman looking fella outside yeah. <laughs> watching him. He's standing there like this, just watching him the whole time. And you can see that hours have passed. His receipts are piling up on the table. The glasses are starting to pile up. And he turns from his last drink and notices the man's gone. And Corso thinks to himself, this is my opportunity. I can get away. He gets out and then the car comes after him again. So he runs. He runs down the stairs. He disappears. And he thinks he's lost them. He starts to walk up the stairs again, and our Dennis Rodman bodyguard is at the top of the <laughs> stairs, ready to ready to beat the shit out of him and try and steal the book. And this is when we see the most important part of the film, in my opinion, around the messy bun woman. And you can tell the listeners, what does this person do in full sight of everyone? Oh, my God. Messy bun has some horrible CGI. I don't even know if it was CGI. It was like the worst graphics I've ever seen floats down levitates and floats down the staircase and starts kicking the ass of this bleach blonde haired guy and she actually protects corso and um the bleach blonde guy runs off but in the process they're all fighting and corso kind of elbows her in the nose and her nose starts bleeding so we have a little bit of bloodletting there um, from Messy Bun, uh, which comes into play later with what she does with her leaky nose. Mm-hmm. But the levitation scene seals it for everyone that she is a supernatural being and she is in some way protecting Corso along his journey. Yeah, and she fights with very little effort. She puts a mm-hmm. slight little kick up and she sends that guy flying. He tries to hit her punch. She dodges everything, blocks it all with very little ease for a woman of her size would be a real struggle. And it's interesting to note that the only person that makes contact with her is Corso by accident. Mm-hmm. The guy mm-hmm. who's fighting her can't land a punch. So that's very interesting in itself. It's almost like they're connected in such a way that the only person that can harm or hurt her is Corso because he's on that journey. So He's already but- through the gates. Do you think that this is another gate opening when he kind of elbows her in, in the bloodletting there? Potentially. You, I think I potentially, think that he, okay. I think he almost needs to be blooded into it. He needs to be a part mm-hmm. of it. Um That's and she I says she says something to that effect later on. You're a part she said it on the plane, you're a part of this now. You're a part mm-hmm. of it. You're a part of this story. So they end up going back to the hotel now. He's been beat up. She's got a blood nose. He seems to really care for her. He grabs some ice and says, put this on the back of your neck. And she sits there and she stares at him. And this is when her serpentine, very alluring green eyes start to glow again. Mm-hmm. At which point she tells him to like, can I kind of shush up? She puts her fingers in her nose and with three fingers puts three lines down his face. She in bloods her him. blood. Yeah, her she blood. bloods him. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, he's, he gets a phone call from Balkan. He goes downstairs, has the conversation about going back, returns to the room and she's gone. So now Corso, knowing that people are after him after the book, he grabs a drink from the mini bar, realizes he has a perfect spot to stash the book. He pulls the, the fridge out, hides the book behind, pushes it in, then goes about, um, he goes about photocopying the book first. Sorry. He photocopies pages out of the book. 
And we find out this is kind of his, his olive branch to the Baroness. He photocopies all the relevant pages, hides the book and returns to her to try and share his findings of the book that the Baroness herself isn't even aware of. The Baroness, um, I mean, this scene ends kind of tragically for her, which I think is another gate opening, but she's the one who goes into the detail about the Teffler woman, the slut bag, how Mm -hmm. she's broke, a broke uh, French person from a French family, kind of like Da Vinci Code style. Yes. And her maiden name is like San Martin, and her family has this, you know, manor in the country somewhere where they've been doing these parties and she almost scoffs at it like it's just a bunch of bored millionaires um indulging in sexual fantasies and it has nothing to do with conjuring the devil and blah 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 they don't even know what they're doing and that to me makes so much more sense that it wouldn't be some weird orgy party that summons the devil that it's these more esoteric like the left-hand path and all these obstacles you have to go through and i don't know did you have any thoughts on that like with the weird like san martins and and the yes she she, the baroness plays that out and puts it all on the table and i think that's really telling to what the elites of our world are like they think that they can gain the favor of um, Lucifer through these things like blood orgies and all these types of horrific stuff that he himself probably doesn't really care about. Like he's the light bringer. He's the one of knowledge of enlightenment. He wants people to challenge themselves through finding the nine gates and passing through them the right way, finding the code. And she plays it out that, these people don't have a firm understanding of what he really is or what he's about. They seem to think they owe their wealth, their stature, their standing in society because of the devil and not their own horrible scrupulous things they do as people. They seem to think it's all down to the devil and through these initiations of the the silver serpent, which we find out is a, a cult was founded after the death of the author that's been playing through the elites and the celebrities of the world and eventually divulged into that group of orgies and um, just silly celebrity type of stuff that we see today. Yes. And so he's kind of, after she divulges all of this, he's kind of doing some more investigating through her copy of the book and you kind of hear the door open, but then the next thing you know, he's getting knocked over the head again. <laughs> he's he's like totally concussed probably at this point, but he wakes back up. The whole building's on fire and Kessler is in her wheelchair in the corner, just going back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> and he goes up. She's dead. She's been murdered. Um, he he grabs a picture from the copy of the book, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. but not does he grab the whole book or just the picture that's in it? I think he just grabs the picture. He notices that the pages have been torn and the picture is of a castle, a castle that we saw originally in the background of Balkan's um, library. And mm-hmm. on the back of that postcard, it says, I saw it first. Mm-hmm. signed Balkan yes. so we know that Balkan has actually most likely purchased this castle for himself yes now he grabs the picture he skedaddles out of there 
And this is where our story starts to pick up because um, he goes back to the room, finds that the book has been stolen. Before most that likely. Happens, before oh, go that ahead. Happens, he leaves the the um, the office of the Baroness, which is now on fire, and he's standing there washing his face and washing his hands. And there's a uh, it's a large dog. I can't remember the breed of it. I think it's a oh. So St. Bernard or something like that. And it's just staring at him. It's not doing anything. It's just staring him in the eyes. And this makes me either think that there's something different about Corso. Now he's changed in this journey, or there's the potential that this dog is actually the messy blonde in a different form. Yep. I think that it is. I think. So one of the theories that I wrote down is that she was one of the hounds of hell. Ooh, nice. So I think she's a shape-shifting being, and that very well could be her other form. But this is what the fifth gate. I sixth believe so. Gate? Yeah, fifth gate. Six. Okay, so um, book is stolen out of his room. They devise a plan to follow Teffler to her mansion to get the book back but he has to admit to Balkan that he's lost it so Balkan now knows that Liliana has it and this is where the fucking train goes off the tracks yes Balkan essentially says to him you know the man I am and the types of things I can do if you don't get my book back in (laughs) a very quick turnaround of time life's going to be very difficult for you he essentially threatens to kill him so the the messy blonde and Corsa, they go to the hotel of where Teffler is to try and get the book back. They go up to her room and they have this large room, a suite that's room 209 to 211. And here's some interesting links to Romans scripture that actually kind of foretells these characters. Romans 209, so room 209, Romans 209, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First the Jew and then the Gentile. Now, this is really interesting, especially with your theory that the original Jews were dark-skinned, melanated people. The bodyguard is a melanated man, a dark-skinned man. He's the first to die, the Jew, air quotes. And then we find it, um, she dies after that. So it's almost foretelling the room numbers that they're going to die. Uh, Romans 2.11, for God does not show favoritism. So... God's actually punishing these people through the actions that they're doing. Wow. That's what I mean about the subtleties in the five layer burrito. (laughs) Who else is looking at that? That was a great find. That was fucking awesome. I'm so glad you found that. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, they leave, um, they managed to get away with the book and they're leaving for the chateau or we assume that they're leaving for a chateau. And this is when the messy blonde steals a, a Ferrari, a bright red Ferrari of all cars, and they jump in and they start chasing this car down. So we fast forward now to the French Chateau. Um, they lose them on the way. A truck kind of blocks them and gives them the bird because they're trying to overpass. And they're stuck at an intersection, a crossroads of all places. They get to a crossroads and she says, which way do you want to go? And he says, oh, you pick, you seem to know everything. Wink, wink, the devil at the crossroads. And she chooses the right direction to go down. At which point they stop and he says, we've lost them. I don't know where they are. 
and he says, "What's what was that woman's name? Um, what was her maiden name? And it turns out that they're actually in the region where her family comes from and they track down the chateau from which her family stems and where this big occultic practice is going on. Wasn't it so they turned right? Yes. Okay, because I was going to say that's interesting because of what I said earlier about this whole movie is kind of the left-hand path. I wonder why they didn't go left now, but it doesn't matter. That She takes him in the right direction. They find the chateau. They climb up the side of the chateau. They're all and some really And some eyes wide shut looking stuff oh, as well. Oh, it's a it? fucking eyes wide shut party if I ever saw one. They got cloaks. Black cloaks, pentagrams, black candles. Mm-hmm. The whole shebang. The whole bang. And they're you know, in a gunfight and fucking just trying to kill each other. But they, there's the scene that's, I'll obviously post pictures and shit of it. This is the ritual scene and everybody's naked under their cloaks and Liliana is reading out of the nine gates and she's like, oh, we're going to summon him here tonight. And Da, da, da. and Balkan shows up and like a <laughs> fucking maniac just goes up to her and just like punches her in the face and like kicks her in the crotch and just like <laughs> it's, it's funny his entrance he's, off. he's so self-centered thinking that he's the only person that understands the true master's intentions he walks in normal pinstripe suit Mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, making fun of all these people and mocking them. This is all mumbo jumbo. How yeah. dare you do all this in the yeah. presence of the Dark Lord? Only I can understand his intricacies and all the things that he purveys. Mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo. Look around you, all of you. What do you see? A bunch of buffoons in fancy dress. You think the Prince of Darkness would actually deign to manifest himself before the likes of you? He never has and he never will. Never. You read from his book, but you have no conception of its true power. I alone have grasped its secret. I alone have fathomed the Master's grand design. I alone am worthy to enjoy the fruits of that discovery. Absolute power to determine my own destiny. You're insane, Boris. Give it back to me! Like, really pumping himself up. And it gets to the point where they get in this scuffle and it gets really dark really quickly. He's literally trying to kill her to the point where he's choking her out with her own pentagram necklace. At which point Corso tries to intervene to save her. And that's when the messy blonde floats down again, like glides down, mm-hmm. gently holds him with one hand while he's trying to fight back and allows Liana to be killed and murdered by Corso. Uh, by a uh, Balkan, sorry. Corso turns to the messy blonde and says, why the hell did you do that? And she says, he just murdered her in front of a whole room full of people. You're off the hook now. So it leaves the impression that the messy blonde is actually intrigued by Corso and wants him to succeed on the path instead of Vulcan. And I think this is another gate opening. 
I think this may be like the eighth gate or maybe the seventh gate because, okay, this is like the seventh gate because after this, he jumps in the car, he leaves Messy Bun there, doesn't even care if she has a ride home. They're in the middle of fucking nowheresville, leaves her, gets in the car, starts following Balkan, and they end up at this castle. Yes, it's right? interesting the choice interesting choice of car though so he's the balkans in the jeep and drives away corso jumps inside as a rolls royce and the symbol of a rolls royce is an angel mm, the symbol on it has true. the wings so he's he's gunning that and this is where i think we get to the eighth gate he's following after him he goes through on the jeep which is a full drive across the river gets to the other side corso hits it and just bogs the car it stops it stalls out so this i think is the next gate whether he tries to get through this this maze, this bridge, which is stopping him, or he, he goes along the line of this, this journey that he has to succeed. Does he stop or does he keep going? He decides to keep going by foot, which he does end up at the castle that we saw in the postcard and the painting in the earlier um, parts of the film. And Balkan is in there and he's trying to conduct his ritual because he's like, I'm the only one who can do this. And he has all of the LCF Lucifer engravings laid out on a table. And he's like, I can even um, walk through fire or whatever. And he has uh, like a little ritualistic symbol laid out. I give you my allegiance, Master. I pledge myself to you, body and soul. Let me fear neither noose, nor fire, nor poison. Erase me from the book of life. Inscribe me in the black book of death. Admit me to the ninth gate. Let it be so. Let it be so. Now! Feel the power surge through me like an electric current, rendering me capable of any feat of mind or body. I'm invulnerable. I'm invincible. <laughs> I could float on air. I could walk on water. Behold, I plunge my hands in fire. I feel no heat. <laughs> this is great. Give us another one. It's miraculous. <laughs> I feel nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, to make the, a long story short, he dumps gas all over himself and lights himself a fucking blaze. And he's like, look, I don't even feel it. And he's like, actually, I kind of do. And then he starts fucking freaking out and screaming. He's literally lit himself on fire. 
in Corso, bang, boom, double taps that ass. He's dead. And I believe that is the, if we're, if I'm counting correctly, this has to be the seventh gate because the eighth gate happens right after this scene. Mm -hmm. And then the ninth gate is the end. So go ahead. After the double tap that ass, go ahead to the next scene. What happens after that? He takes pity on him and he actually shoots Balkan. Um, Balkan's now dead. He was a, a little blaze by covering himself in petrol because that's a, such a smart thing to do. Shoots him. He leaves the castle, which is now on fire, which you see depicted in um, the original pictures. He hops in the car and he turns around and the messy blonde is there again. She starts making out with him. Her eyes are very bright and vibrant again, like she's seducing him. They end up having sex outside on the ground in front of the castle, which is now a light. And as she's having sex with them, they're making the beast of many backs, ironically, because <laughs> there's a hydra in the picture. They're, they're having sex and he seems to be kind of out of it. He's almost disembodied. He's sitting there not knowing what's going on. She's riding him like a wild banshee. And her face is subtly morphing and changing throughout all of this. As the flames from the light come across her face, you can see it slightly changing into different people as it's going on. And her it's eyes are glowing the whole time. creepy as fuck. Like her face is transforming into an actual demon face while she's like grinding away. <laughs> and he's like not even, he does, it's almost kind of like a rapey type of, like if a Very dude rapey. can be raped, that was a <laughs> rape scene if I ever saw one. He was totally out of it. And, you know, eyes rolling back in his head, not in a good way. And she, her face is just like transforming into this demon. And like cut two, they're talking like, I guess he wasn't bothered by the demon faces. Maybe that's what he's into. But like, he's still hanging around her. Yeah, and he's like, just... <laughs> why do you think it didn't work for him? And isn't it Bessie Bun that says one of the engravings was a forgery? Yes. So his book actually was, had a forgery in it. And if we go back to the conversation he had with the twins, the twins spoke about it would take an expert master to forge a missing page. And then the second twin said, yes, an expert master. So it implies that these twins actually forged the missing page themselves. Mm-hmm. At which point he says, i I need it. And she says, where are you going? Is I need it. And you know why I need it. So he's traveled from a, a path of needing financial cold, hard cash. That's his greed. That's his sin into a sin of needing knowledge and power. He's got, he needs to have no understand what's going on now. So he actually returns to the library where the twins are and the place has been cleaned out. They're no longer there. There's some builders there dismantling things. They're pulling down this old cabinet. And as they're pulling it down, tilting it, the missing page, the original, falls off the top and floats down in front of Corso, in which he sees at the very bottom inscription, LCF. So we have the very final page that he needs to conduct the exact same ritual that our original Balkan tried to do, but he couldn't achieve because it was a forgery. So I think it's interesting going back to the whole twins idea that they were the ones who did the forgery because... If you think of it, the engravings were twins, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. They were just very subtly different. And one was the real one and one is the fake one. But 
messy bun is in the last engraving riding the serpent with the many heads and him having been raped by her was the opening of the eighth gate which Mm -hmm. very interesting that that was the eighth gate but the film ends and I told you before we started recording, this is the part my cousin said, I watch this movie every time and I always hope that the ending is going to be different. Um, but the movie ends with him returning, Corso returning to the castle and the doors opening up and there's this beautiful, brilliant, vibrant light cascading out of the doorway and he enters in ninth gate Ba boom, movies over. Did you <laughs> did you have anything more in detail though? Because that, that was just um, the gist. Yeah, I think that that last engraving is gives you the best clue as to who this girl is. Um, so the biggest clue in her identity is in that final engraving. When Corso finds the last image, he looks closely at the woman, and it's her face. The naked woman astride the multi-headed beast looks like the girl. Um, with this way, she's depicted in the movie as the whore of Babylon. But do you think she's the whore of Babylon? I think it plays on ideas of the whore of the whore of Babylon. I think it's more likely that she I don't think she is the devil. I think that she's a fallen angel. I do too. And that is pretty much what I had here that I wanted to kind of like go over a little bit just to sum everything up. And some people have speculated that she was a succubus, that she was Lucifer, that she was the whore of Babylon that she was a guardian angel, but I actually think that she is a fallen angel. So she is an ambiguous, shape-shifting, supernatural, fallen angel being. And that is... some The guardian angel thing was interesting to me because they... Apart from the end where you clearly see that she's a demon raping him, they were like, well, what if it was a guardian angel, like a heavenly angel, because God needs the ninth gate to be open to bring about revelation. And this angel mm. was helping him in his journey to open these gates so that revelation can be brought forward and fulfill prophecy. So could this have been a guardian angel? But that last scene where she's like all writhing and that that was not no I disagree I think and especially with the black dog like what you were saying with the shape-shifting and this has to be like a what is referred to as a demon but is really just a, a fallen angel shape-shifting type being right yeah that's what I assume um it's interesting that the different gates in this film are like different tests that allow one to enter into the next stage um, and allows them to manage the indirect route to a, to brave the arrows and misfortunes and failures of this quest. They have to actually experience those things to get through the gates. Um, it's Corso who does all these things, yet it's none too clear from Balkan's interpretations um, that he's the one entering into it. He tried to use someone else to go through all the challenges so he could just swoop in at the end. And I think that's one of the major things that made it fail for him because he didn't actually undertake the quest. He thought he was mm-hmm. doing it through someone else. Um, Balkan assumes that he's being admitted into a pact of the devil, one that gives him supernatural powers, but there's nothing in his interpretation of the drawings that implies this, apart from the letters um, LCF. 
There's he just yeah. he just assumes that that's the way. He thinks he can buy it. Mm-hmm. With his that's cold, their hard problem. Cash. That's all of their problems. That's that was Liliana's problem. That was um, Balkan's problem. And I think the only other person who had the capability of opening the nine gates would have been Kessler, but she was like handicapped and stuck in a library essentially. So she, it wasn't like she could actually make the quest, but I think she was intellectual enough and committed to the process enough to do it. But it took, as they kept saying, there was two times they said it. The first time came from the twins when they said that the book has a life of its own and it's, oh, isn't it funny, um, the destiny of who the book ends up with. And then the second time was Fargus when he said some books are not meant to be opened with impunity mm-hmm. or something to that effect so they've they keep on saying over and over and over again that this book is alive in some way yes it's, it's almost a story of of duality in two characters there's the two journeys going on in this one is boris balkan who's materialistically hungry for the acquisition and is determined to to get what he wants Um, The second journey is that of Corso, who through the narrative of the story, he becomes a seeker of knowledge without any clear vision of what the outcome will be. He just needs to know it. He doesn't know what the end goal is. He doesn't believe in it. He just needs to understand why. Both men are traveling in opposite directions. One's heading towards ultimate destruction, being dragged down into the fires of hell, which is ironic because Balkan's name means destruction. Um, And the other is a man who's, who's going through it through like a revelation of the method. He's not actively engaged in a, in a belief system, but he's finding out through understanding and knowledge, which is what Luciferianism is all about at the end of the day. It's all about knowledge and power. So neither man is innocent in this, um, but one failed because he didn't play by the rules. So he suffers the integral trap of being contained within the riddle of the book forever. So he's burnt into that castle for the rest of time. The other mm. complexities around the protagonists are that these engravings they portray an idea that it's not just spiritual but psychological they have to understand themselves in the journey and their part before the next gate can be opened do you think that we're collectively going through like they're trying to open nine gates with the world in society because i feel like there have been changes that have occurred throughout the last couple of years and you can almost pinpoint it and say well this was probably gate one um the vaccines are gate two this is gate three and i i you know could be totally wrong but it's almost like we have collectively went on such a journey together it doesn't matter if you're in australia or oklahoma we've kind of been on this path towards whatever the outcome is for a while now, I think it probably started with maybe 9-11 and then it's XYZ COVID and then it's like XYZ transhumanism, XYZ this. And it's almost like we're collectively passing through the nine gates to bring about revelation. I think you're right. Or or either it's naturally happening in the way that God would intend for it to happen. But then there's the way that the the Kabbalistic and the elites of the world want to usher it in their own way. 
And you see that within the spheres of the cabal, there's actually 10 spheres. The first one being earth. So that's the grounding. That's where you start from. After that, there's nine spheres. So it's got the nine gates again. There's nine attainments of knowledge before you can get to illumination. So mm-hmm. it, it exists in their own dogma. So it's it's a well-written book that it taps into so many elements of what these people believe to be true or the things that they're trying to usher in. And it's presenting it in a way to the viewer that seems so obvious on its on its face, but it's so much deeper than you can ever understand. So much deeper. So, I mean, just to wrap up everything, I want you to maybe do like a two-fold rating for the nine gates you can rate it as a movie and then as a conspiracy theorist like for me i'm giving the ninth gate six gates as just a movie and 10 gates as a conspiracy theorist okay i would give it seven gates as a movie I feel like Polanski was very clever in his his shots, um, his storyline, how he drove it, how he adapted it from a book. I think he did really well in that regard. As a conspiracy movie, I would probably give it a nine. A nine based on he's hitting all the elements of the stuff that we know about in our little community, but he's trying to portray it in a way that's, he's presenting Satanism as, not being an evil, bloodthirsty, Audrey type of a thing. He's presenting it as being the attainment of knowledge and enlightenment, which is a trick in itself. I think that's a deception. And I think he's done a really good job at that. He's not posing it as being a bad thing in this film. When he enters the ninth gate, it looks appealing. It's bright. It's vibrant. He's got to the end of his troubles. He's going to get all this knowledge out of it. It's not presented in a bad way for our hero. Damn, you nailed it. Okay. Okay, I'm revising my rating. <laughs> I'm going to give it I'm going to give it a, a 9 gates as well because the the same exact idea that you're you're going on is it made it appealing maybe for someone who is interested in the occult to watch a movie like that. And then be like, you know what? I kind of want to look more into this. Like, is what what is this based on? Or and then you've made an occultist out of someone. But it's not odd and odd that Johnny Depp would later go on in life to have this weird occulted shit in his life with like Damien Eccles and the West Memphis Three and Marilyn Manson. And he petition to get Damien Eccles who's very much so the murderer of like those West Memphis three boys and he's innocent he's innocent Damien Eccles has a whole library of Aleister Crowley books there is a library that's dedicated to him in a Masonic lodge it's called uh like the Eccles library he writes books books about magic and so I that and like fear and loathing in Las Vegas and some of the other movies that he was in, you just kind of see that he's totally into this shit. I don't think that they had to force him to be in this movie, even though he complained about like, oh, they didn't get the best performance out of me. But I'm sure he enjoyed making this movie. I mean, he had a kid 
1999, the year it came out, like he met one of his longtime loves and very interesting. Isn't that the, the toll of what these films and these lifestyles do to these people, though, very evident at the end of their careers mm. or towards the end? He started Very off as one of so. America's most beloved actors and method actors. And then over time, he is a broken, twisted man whose life seems to have challenge after challenge and failure after failure at the moment. Is that mm-hmm. his, him having to pay the toll for what he's done in his career choices and the things he's actually representing? Yeah, him and Amber Turd, which like <laughs> she, if we're just going to connect this back in with the fallen angel avenue he got her that part in aquaman which is about atlantis and supernatural beings and xyz but i wonder if he'll be in anything coming up that has like these same undertones i'll be interested to see what his future work looks like yeah he kind of was on the the disney train with parts of the caribbean and then he kind of disappeared he hasn't been in a lot of things Right. So it's interesting to see what his next big choice will be. And It'll if it be is the... something if it is something esoteric and Kabbalistic or elite style that we look at, it'll be very telling that maybe he's trying to regain favor in what he's doing and try to revitalize his career through his choices. It'll be probably like some apocalyptic type of prophetic. Instead of 2012, it'll be like 2026 and it'll just be <laughs> or whatever. But so, Drew, you came, you saw, you smashed, crushed, blew it up, bombshell, loved everything. I'm so impressed. And for the listeners who maybe are hearing you for the first time, can you let them know where they can find more of your work? Yeah, sure. Um, you're missing the point podcast, M I S N. If I'm in all the usual podcatchers, um, I'm on Instagram. I'm heavily shadow banned, unfortunately. Missing underscore the underscore point. I'm also under you're missing the point on Twitter. Um, yeah, just search my name. You should be able to find me. Yes, and I am truly a selfish human being. I take up a lot of your time every time we do one of these. But I'm so glad that you share on your podcast as well, because the other breakdowns that you have done in the past had inspired me to start this little breakdown shakedown thing because you can never run out of occult shit movies to talk about. I mean, it's crazy, but <laughs> weren't you doing something along the lines of like a conspiracy theory, theater something? Those episodes yeah. are still up, right? Yeah, Conspiracy Theater 3000 is a movie breakdown that myself, Moral Bob, and Andy Rouse have been working on. It's it's few and far between at the moment just because of life gets in the way with three hosts, but we're really putting things in place to make sure that it's at least a once a month recording where we're putting out shows similar to what we've just done today, Julia. Um, just pulling apart classic Hollywood films and seeing what's actually the messaging underneath. Are you still doing your cryptids? I am. I've, I've got a lot of research in that that I'm I'm wanting to put something together that... At the moment, I'm not happy with it, so I'm not going to release it until I'm, I've got it at a point where it can be released. So a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Love those two, by the way. But I think that you have so much to offer. I hope everyone goes and checks out your Missing the Point podcast. Um, thank you so much, Drew. I really appreciate it. Uh, don't go opening any nine gates 
uh, (laughs) for the rest of the afternoon. But to all the listeners, thank you. And we will catch you on the next one.